take our Bible, turn over to Genesis chapter 21 as we talk about the clarification of God's promise. And it's so great to hear how God is working personally in people's lives. Even this week, as uh, Steve was telling me a couple times the story of what was going on, and I'm glad he shared that aspect. And so as we think of our many of our people, I don't think there's been a time in our church where we've had so many people with physical and ailments and, and issues going on uh, that I can remember in the nearly 12 years. So we need to continue to pray and continue to have faith. In Genesis chapter 21, we talk about the clarification of God's promises. Clarification of God's promises. Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Well, in 1973, there was a young man, 26 years of age, and his name was Steven Spielberg. And he was tasked with the idea of taking Peter Benchley's book called Jaws and making it into a movie. And of course, that became a phenomenon, you know. Uh, shark phobia began to occur. Even to this day, many people, when they hear there's a shark in the area that they're uh, on a beach, uh, they run for cover in many ways. But the real interesting thing is if you look at statistics, the average amount of people that die every year because of a shark attack is one. One person, according to Foreign Policy magazine. And so there's some other ways that are, you're more likely to die than that of a shark attack, even though we hear about the uh, phobia mania a lot of times. Do you realize that trampolines account for an average of one death per year? Roller coasters take 1.1 lives per year. So the article advises, keep your hands inside the car. Your next thrill ride could be to the coroner's office. The freestanding kitchen range tips over can cause 1.3 deaths per year. Vending machines, two people die per year shaking those machines. So if those high fat snacks don't take your life prematurely and you're shaking that machine for a freebie, you might be sleeping with the Pepperidge Farm goldfishes, so be careful. <laughs> the riding lawnmower can take 5.2 lives per year. Fireworks cause 6.6 .6 deaths per year, although technically these deaths are by careless people looking in the PVC pipe waiting to see if the firework is going to shoot out, and they're ignoring the warning that fireworks can burn at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, hot as a blowtorch. Skydiving accidents account for 21 deaths per year, and getting crushed by furniture causes an average of 26 deaths per year in the United States. That's why comedian Stephen Colbert issues a warning against the perils of terrorist furniture. So be careful. So the article concludes with the challenge to face our fears and uh, to take action. 
after reminding us that the risk factors of people uh, dying from smoking, a poor diet, and lack of physical activity and alcohol, that's what affects about 87% of Americans who die each year. He says to get off the couch, turn off jaws, and go for a swim. And that's what we need to think about. Fear and feelings have, can have a tremendous effect on how we view God and our circumstances. They can distort our faith. They can discourage our faith. They can even squelch our faith by wrong perceptions of our situation in life. Positive thinker Zig Ziglar, who's passed away, says fear is this, and I put it up on the screen. Fear is false evidences appearing real, making an acrostic. Fear is false evidences appearing real. Remember, the Bible says in 1 John 4 that perfect love casts out fear. And fear can overcome anything, the fear and the feelings in our lives. In this age of COVID-19, we have to take the proper precautions. We need to be reminded as we've uh, faced an uptick here in our county and around our country to wash our hands, to wear our masks, to social distance six feet apart. But we can't allow the pandemic to cause us to fear, but we must live by faith. And as this pandemic is growing with new cases, we have to focus on faith on God who is overall and in control. We don't know yet what the purpose of this pandemic is from God's perspective, but we are not to make ourselves vulnerable. We're to do wise things. But after taking all the precautions, we need to be reminded that God will take care of us. And we do need to ask ourselves at what point, for those of us who may not be attending here in person, uh, when will we come back? We were made for relationship. We grow in our walk with Christ in relationship with others. And we're not made for permanent isolation. It's detrimental for people not to be connected face to face. In a meeting I had this week with uh, Mayor Bob Gallagher from Bettendorf, school officials, health experts, people in the mental health field and faith leaders, one of the biggest concerns in our community is suicide. Just recently, a man uh, jumped to his death off an assisted living building in Leclerc. And so this is a real issue as we think about how we take care of this pandemic from all aspects. So as we get comfortable sometimes sitting at home and watching our service, um, I hope that you're longing for the day to be back together on Sunday mornings in worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I hope that's a spark that's in you. And we think about the question, at what point will we return? And what will be the situation that will allow us to return? We need to be answering that question, or some of us may never return at any time. I just remember what 1 Corinthians 12 talks about, how we're all part of the body of Christ, and how we all need to come together in corporate worship to bring our spiritual gifts and our uh, relational aspect. And as we heard Steve share his perspective uh, that brings us to encourage one another. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Verse 14 of that chapter, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And so we are better together and if one member is not here, the body of Christ suffers because we don't have your unique perspective that God has given you in the sharing of your special spiritual gift package that God has given you. So I look forward to and pray for the day when all this will clear up and we can gather together and be together in worship. But until then, let's keep praying 
Let's stay faithful to watch online. Let's be looking forward to the day in the future that we can come around together and thank God for the privilege of being together in person. But until then, we thank God for the gift of the internet and for live streaming. So let's review where we've been with this study of Abraham and the walk of faith. You see on your outline, if you have your insert there from the program, the call of Abraham. Remember, he was in a polytheistic uh, society, worshiping idols. His dad was an idol worshiper, and God, in his grace, came down and touched Abram and called him, and called him out of that area and moved to his future home, where his future offspring would be eventually Canaan. Abram never saw the promise fulfilled, where they would possess the land as he traveled as a nomad by tent, as God led him. We talked about the compassion of Abraham, how he shared his uh, wealth with Lot. And he went and even rescued Lot and all his people and belongings after they were taken captive. We talked about the contract with Abram. We talked about the smoking pot and how Abram divided the animals in the smoking pot, which represented God and his holiness, went between those pieces saying, it's all on me. I'm the one that's going to fulfill this promise. And then last week we talked about the confusion of Abraham and how he uh, was afraid that if someone found out that Sarah was his wife, that he would uh, maybe even lose his own life. And so he worried more about his personal safety than that of Sarah when he lied to Pharaoh and to Abimelech. But even in the lies, God protects Sarah and Abram, even though they're rebuked. And Abraham follows Sarah's doubting advice and brings tremendous consequences to bear that have epic implications and that of the birth of Ishmael through Hagar. So let's move into today's message and what we can learn more about faith with Abram and Sarai. First of all, God consecrates Abraham. God consecrates. He sets him apart. He makes him different. He makes him a unique person. God consecrates Abraham. Abram is 99 years of age at this point in the story. And God changes Abraham and Sarah's names. Look at chapter 17 of Genesis. Turn over there. We're going to look at a couple sections and other chapters. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. The writer writes, Moses says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. And said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and the kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. What an amazing promise. What an amazing reminder once again that God had come to Abraham and to tell him these things. 
God's promises are now growing more and more magnificent with Abram as time goes on. God describes himself, himself here as the Lord Almighty. It means El Sadai. Sadai, when used of God, refers to his ability to supply abundantly the abundant one. It also means to have majestic strength, the Almighty One. Abraham means the father of many nations. In changing Abram's name to Abraham, God was moving him from a father of a great nation to a father of many nations. Kings will come from him. Think of David and Solomon and many, many others that would come after him. The covenant with God is not just with Abraham, but his very descendants as well. And blessings upon Israel eternally and land as promised. Notice the land is an everlasting possession, it says there in verse 8. During the tribulation, I believe there will be many, many Jews that will come to faith in Christ, become Messianic Jews. Revelation talks about at least 144,000, but I believe there will be many, many more. Some of them will be martyrs for the faith because they stand for Jesus the Messiah. But when Jesus comes back and he sets up his rule and reign in Jerusalem and uh, in the millennial time, they will rule and reign with him and they will enjoy the boundaries that we saw earlier in Genesis that were promised to them for the land. The name change is significant. Abram, his former name, harkened back to the old times, to Terah, to his past. But adding the H-A in the middle Abraham looks forward to the future with hope and anticipation of great things. Can you imagine what people must have thought or said when Abraham came and told them that God changed his name to Abraham? Can you imagine how they laughed maybe behind his face and he didn't still have his son born yet, Isaac? It kind of reminds me of what Mary and Joseph went through in the Christmas story and how when the Holy Spirit came and told Mary that she would give birth to the Son of God. And she would have to carry this baby for nine months and face ridicule, and, and Joseph would as well, as he chose not to divorce Mary. And they had to face and, and have people ask, was this baby born out of wedlock? Imagine what Abraham must have gone through. But later on, we'll see, and we'll just mention it here, that notice, notice Sarah, Sarai's name changes to Sarah. Sarai means princely, and contentious, but Sarah means princess. But nonetheless, this couple should be commended that even at times they doubted, they still had hoped that God would answer the promise given to them. Then we see as part of Abraham's consecration, God uses circumcision to set apart his people. God uses circumcision. Look at verses 9 through 14 in Genesis 17. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. 
any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So what is Old Testament circumcision and what's it all about? Well, it was a sign of who you belong to. It's true that other religions used this uh, ritual as well during this time, but the meaning for the Jew is significant. They were to be fully set apart from the false teachings and the idolatry of the world around them and seek God's holiness in their lives. To refuse, as it says there, to accept circumcision for the males was to be cut off from their people. In God's eyes, the covenant with them would be broken. Well, New Testament talks about the circumcision in a number of different ways. Baptism is a symbol. It's the initial sign of salvation. It's the mark of a Christian. It's publicly identifying with who Jesus Christ is in your life and your willingness to be committed to live for him for the rest of your days. The Holy Spirit is a spiritual circumcision to set us apart from God. Paul said this in Romans chapter 2 to show the distinction of what it means to be circumcised in the heart. He says, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. We are marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit. Just like ranchers who have cattle, and they take a branding iron, and they brand that animal, it's to put a seal on them to identify who they belong to. And that is what the Holy Spirit does when he comes in and inhabits our life at salvation. It's a sign of dependence on God alone for life and everything in life. And to not believe and trust in God is breaking of the covenant and our hope in God. Another aspect would be the Lord's Supper, continuous sign of commitment to the covenants that God has given to each and every one of us. So are we seeking merely God's hand of blessing, but not seeking his face of holiness? That's something we need to think about. It's easy for us to get caught up in our prayer life of asking God to uh, help this person, to help me, and to have a list of things. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's intercessory prayer. But in our prayer time, do we seek the holiness of God? Do we see him high and lifted up and rightfully to be adored in all his perfection and purity? We need to think about that. Are we seeking holiness? And if so, we need to be careful what our motives are for seeking holiness in our lives. I hope it's not to seek rewards. I hope it's not to avoid judgment, but to bring honor and glory and to magnify the name of of Jesus Christ. That's why we live holy lives. That's why God said, be holy as I am holy, several times in scripture. God is looking for clean vessels to fulfill his kingdom work. And he calls us in 2 Corinthians 6.14 to come out and be separate from the world. Jesus said we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We are not to buy into the things, the philosophies of this world. In 2 Timothy 2, it says, Now in a great house, Paul said, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace, and along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Holiness, holiness. There's a story about two young brothers, and they lived in the 1960s, and uh, they collected baseball cards. And the older brother, um, he was really a fanatic about it, and he had some special holy cards that only he was supposed to play with. And so they would get together, the two boys, and they would get the baseball cards out, and they would play with them, and they would you know, divide them up and make teams. They would make an all-star team. They would separate the duplicates so they could take them to school the next day and maybe trade them for someone else. And uh, so one day, the younger brother had this great idea while the big brother was gone. He went and found those special holy cards. And he got his scissors out, and he cut the faces off of all those special holy cards, and he glued them to lined paper and put them in a binder and presented them to his brother. And the younger brother said, I'll never forget the look on his face when I handed him this supposed gift that his holy cards were all cut up and put on this paper. And he closed by saying that he thinks that the Hank Aaron rookie card that he cut the head off of is worth $100,000 on eBay. Those holy cards. God wants us to be set apart to be clean vessels so he can use us in the way that he wants us to do. And our application is, are you a clean vessel ready for God's use in his kingdom work? Well, then we see that God fulfills his promise. We see a typo there. It should be God. God consummates the promise of Isaac. God consummates the promise of Isaac. We see another revelation from God. How many times does God come and reveal himself to Abraham. Here's another one. And we won't take time to read it, but in Genesis 18, 1 through 8, we know that Abram had uh, pitched his tent near the oaks of Mambri, and, and he was there living, and three men approach the tent. And he comes out, and he talks to these men, and they're from the Lord. And he recognizes they're from God, and so what does he do? He has his wife to need some bread and to cook it quickly, and one of his servants gets a fatted calf and kills it and prepares it. And while these men are eating, Abraham is talking with them as he, they reveal themselves to him. Then we see another reminder in this conversation of the promise. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Genesis 18. Turn over to Genesis 18. Look at verses 9 and 10. These men said to Abraham, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Have you ever noticed in your own personal life how God sends things into your life to remind you of the faith and that he will fulfill the promises that he's given you? I think of the special reminders he sends to me. This week I was getting ready for my class at Scott Community College, and it's all on Zoom, and so it create some technical challenges, and I was trying to get this DVD to play in my 
uh, DVD player in my computer, which was necessary, and it wasn't working, and I tried four or five programs and all these things, and I just prayed, and then God showed me a very simple way to make it work. And so it just shows you that God does the little things to remind us that he is going to take care of us. Or maybe it's someone that comes along and helps you to do something to make life easier for you. I think of uh, an all-access pass. I've had the opportunity to have uh, one of those lanyards with a pass on it that gives you, at an event, the opportunity to go backstage and to meet the key leaders and the people of those times. And think about One Voice when they had the Christmas program at the Tax Slayer and you know, as a pastor, I got to go back behind the screen and, and meet with the leaders, and then we come out and talk about, you know, we sponsored this event. The all-access pass gives you access to everything. Well, guess what? God has given each and every one of us an all-access pass because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus is our high priest, as it tells us in Hebrews, that we have very, the access to the very throne room of God to the keys of the treasure box, to understand the promises of God that are in the treasure box that we can avail ourselves of at any time. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, it says, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He does all these things to keep us focused on him, to be dependent upon him alone. And so our application is this. Are you keeping your eye on the prize? It's easy to get distracted. Think about Peter, the apostle Peter. He got out of the boat. He was looking at Jesus. He was walking on the water. But what happened? He began to look around at the waves and the circumstances around him. He says, I can't really be doing this. And he sank because he took his eyes off the prize. You and I, as we go through difficult times, as we face this pandemic, as we see no end in sight, we have to keep our eyes focused on faith in God. And lastly, God confronts Sarah. God confronts Sarah for her unbelief. We see the resistance to faith by Sarah. Think about it, after all these promises, after all these things that Abraham has told her, and sometimes, you know, she was there when God revealed himself and told Abraham of these promises. She still struggled with doubt. Look at Genesis 18, verse 10. And Sarah was listening at the door of these three men talking to Abraham. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She says, long since gone that I could have children. In verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, Shall I have pleasure? The resistance of faith. And how many times, even though we know what God's word says, even though we've memorized the scripture, do we internalize it? Do we live it out? Do we live as if it's going to happen in our lives? We see the rebuke of Sarah from God because of her doubt, the rebuke. Look at verses 13 through 15. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. 
the omnipresence of God. He knew what was going on. Isn't it amazing that despite Abraham's history of lying, of taking matters into his own hands and general disbelief, God is still committed to fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham. And despite Sarah laughing out of skepticism and doubt about God's ability, the Lord rebukes her, but he uses her to mother a child who would be the beginning of Israel and bless many nations, and many nations would come out of them. And to bring the gospel to the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. It should give us hope that God never gives up on us. Also, nothing, even human doubts, do not thwart God's master, sovereign plan in this world. Notice what he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? This phrase means it's, it's not a quality that can be associated with human understanding. Remember in 2 Chronicles when Solomon finished the temple and invited God at the dedication service to come in. And God said, hey, I cannot dwell in just a simple building because I'm far greater and more expansive than this building. But yet, God sent his Shekinah glory down and hovered over that temple. I think about how hard means the idea of the virgin birth. And you and I, we could spend a lifetime trying to understand that, but it only something that God could explain to us. And he's saying here, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is it too hard for me to allow Sarah to get pregnant at a very old age and for Abraham to have a son at age 100? Well, in Genesis verses 21 through 7, as we read at the beginning, the promise is fulfilled. And at just the right time, Isaac was born. And it reminds me of Galatians 4.4, as we often quote at Christmas time. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. After 400 years of silence, after no real revelation from God, no prophet between the old and the new, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. At just the right time, Isaac was born. He was circumcised on the eighth day, as we read earlier. And praise God for fulfilling the promise in verses 6 and 7. Flip over to Genesis 21. Genesis 21, verses 6 and 7. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Isaac's name means laughter. It could be it's a reminder, a constant reminder to Sarah when she said that name of the doubt that she had at the beginning. But now Isaac means God's overcoming joy. God took her hidden doubts and turned them into overwhelming joy and faith. And he can do the same for you and myself. So we must guard the intents of our heart and deal with doubt in a way that pleases God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. When those doubts, when those uh, skeptical thoughts, when those cynical thoughts come into our mind, what do you do with them? You run to Jesus. You bring him to him. You look at things from his perspective. And so the application here is that God knows the intents of our heart. 
God knows the intents of our heart. Just as Sarah laughed and didn't think they heard her laughter, God heard her doubts. Our key thought today is this. Our faith is in the solid rock and not in a hope-so faith. I'm reading a book called Waiting Well. Waiting Well, how to wait well on God. And in that book, in the second chapter, it talks about the difference between faith in this world and the faith for the Christian. We can have faith that our favorite sports team is going to win the next game or get into the championship. We can have faith that maybe and hope that the stock market will increase and our 401k will get better. But the faith we're talking about is in a bedrock anchor in God the Father, who, as we read through the Bible, how he makes promises, and many of them are conditional based on believing by faith, but he meets us and answers those promises each and every time. I want to close with this. Take your Bible and turn over to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, I want you to get the perspective of the writer of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, as he talks about Abraham and Sarah, verses 8 through 16. And I believe this applies to us, and this should be our approach, our attitude, in these times of uncertainty and the difficulties that we face. In Hebrews 11:8, it says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children, because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. Verse 12, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive completely the promises that were given. But they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. And if they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. When we face adversity, we have the certainty, as it tells us in Colossians, that set our mind on things that are above, that God views us as already there in heaven. And he is building a place with your name on it, a specific place. And may we live by faith knowing that. As we close today, here's some questions to ponder this week. Actually, two questions and a statement. Number one, are you seeking God's face of holiness in your prayer life and behavior? And I added for myself, or are you seeking only God's hand of blessing? Are you seeking to understand the holy God, the one who we are praying to. Second of all, do you remain steadfast and holding firmly to the promises of God in your life? And here's a third statement to ponder this week. When confronted with fear and doubt, let faith drive them away. Let faith drive them away. Let's bow for prayer. 
as we look at the life of Abraham and Sarah, as we see that basically from the beginning of the time of Abraham that we study to the very end, as we'll see in January, when he is willing to sacrifice Isaac, the promised one, on the altar. God is building and, and, and testing his faith and maturing it and growing it. And maybe here today, maybe again, you're, you're struggling with some doubts. You're struggling with some issues. I encourage you, just leave them at the foot of the cross. Trust in God's eternal promises and the hope that so many before us have had to live in. Many of these people, as we said, never saw their promises completely fulfilled, but they did when they entered into the joy of their reward in heaven when Jesus said to them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, we pray you help us to be steadfast, to be immovable, to be focused, to Lord, when we get dissuaded by the things of this world and get overwhelmed by the negativity of politics and the negativity of COVID and all these things that we have to face and we wonder, are things ever going to change? How are we going to get through this? Help us to know that you've already pioneered the way, that you're leading the way. And then we'll look back in 15, five years and see what you were trying to teach us all along. So help us to be available, willing, clean servants, to be hold on, holding on to your hand of faith as you lead us and guide us. Give us strength. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.